Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. they started holding DARP attack, this sort of biannual conference at Disneyland in California and, you know, having office directors dress up in Disney suits. And it was very, what I call the Disneyfication of DARPA. You're listening to War College, a weekly podcast that brings you the stories from behind the front lines. Here are your hosts, Matthew Galt and Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt. Better weapons don't always mean victory in a fight. But if you're fighting with bronze and the other guys got steel, you're likely to lose. In 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik and the U.S. freaked out. Suddenly, our military might looked like stone knives and bearskins. What's a superpower to do? Enter the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. Sharon Weinberger is a journalist who covers national security and the author of The Imagineers of War, the untold story of DARPA, the Pentagon agency that changed the world. She joins us to talk about the secretive agency today. So thanks for joining us, Sharon. Thanks for having me. Can we just start off with what exactly is DARPA? Is it a bunch of government scientists in lab coats in some secret underground bunker or how does it work? No, there's a misconception sometimes that you know DARPA does research. So DARPA itself is essentially a government funding agency, maybe even a, a research management agency. It does not have, and by design, never had its own laboratories. Um, the scientific technical staff of DARPA, who transition out every three to five years, aren't typically doing research at DARPA. They are funding, organizing research projects outside, whether in academia, military or private industry. There are some small exceptions, but that's for the most part what it is. It is a research management agency, which sounds very unsexy, but it's done a lot of very sexy things. What are some of those sexy things that it's done? Well, I think what most people who follow DARPA, what sort of cemented its reputation are a number of, of very notable innovations, the most famous of which is the modern internet, which grew directly out of um, a system called ARPANET that was created by DARPA, then called ARPA at the time in the 1960s and 1970s. Um, it's really the internet that has cemented DARPA's reputation today. But a number of other things that came out of DARPA are drones, unmanned aerial vehicles. Again, a direct result of DARPA's work going back as far as the 1960s, but more notably in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, then there's stealth aircraft. The first stealth aircraft prototype 
um, was the brainchild of DARPA, though jointly funded by the Air Force, but was really DARPA's management pushing forward. Precision weapons are also very much inherited out of DARPA programs. So uh, if you think about it, the way that we prosecute our wars today and also even the way we live our lives on a daily basis as not members of the military are a direct outgrowth of some of DARPA's seminal projects. So one one of the things I wanted to ask you, you call them Imagineers in the title of your book, which makes me think of Disney. Why did you pick that term specifically? Well, a couple of reasons. One was that, you know, there's a tendency, there's a lot of books sort of about the wizards of, you know, the wizards of war, the wizards of, of Armageddon, where wizards stay up late, which was a book about the creation of, of the Internet and personal computing at DARPA. And I wanted this very much to be a critical history because as much good as DARPA has done um, and as successful as it's, as it's been, I wanted to, this to be a candid exploration of its failures. And at the same time, I wanted to capture something that DARPA has struggled with over the years, which is its its role in national security. I often ask the question, you know, is, is DARPA a, a science agency that does national security or is it a national security agency that does science? And at times, you know, DARPA has careened towards a, a myth about itself that it does science fiction. And it's careened so far to that myth at times that in the 2000s, they started holding DARPA Tech, this sort of biannual conference at Disneyland in California. And, you know, having office directors dress up in Disney suits. And it was it's very what I call the Disneyfication of DARPA. And so this uh, title, The Imagineers of Wars, was very purposely coined from the Disney term of Imagineers. That's the term that Disney uses for its, um, you know, its people that dream up things. And I purposely took that because, in a sense, that is what DARPA at times has imagined itself, only it's not imagineering, you know, Mickey Mouse and, and Pluto. It's imagineering war. But it all so it captures sort of the complexities of DARPA in the 2000s, but also what DARPA was in the 1960s and 1970s that I think it's not as much today, which is the original sort of strategic thinkers of DARPA were thinking not about science fiction per se, but they were imagineering war. They were thinking, how do we fight in wars today? How do we fight in wars tomorrow? And how do we engineer solutions? to war, whether it is keeping peace or fighting wars. Um, so that's, that is the sort of the long explanation of the Imagineers of War. It was the one term I could come up with that I felt captured the complexity of DARPA, both of its successes and its failures, and of the controversy within it. I am now stuck on thinking about the DARPA officials dressed as Disney characters. Uh, in Disneyland. I think there's pictures online. Uh, you know, one of the things that I point out in the book is in recent years, one of the more notable failures, and I'll sort of use it in quotes, because what you consider a failure depends on your point of view on it. But I think the biggest controversy that DARPA was involved in in the years after 9-11 um, was a program called Total Information Awareness that was headed by retired Admiral John Poindexter, famous from the Iran-Contra controversy, and then hired into DARPA to run this program, which was the first really controversial domestic surveillance program and just blew up in the press after the New York Times covered it. This program and John Poindexter's introduction of it was rolled out at Disneyland. If I remember right, that was the program that was supposed to 
make sense out of all of the data that was being collected already and make us aware of the information we already had, right? Yes, which seems so innocent in the years after Edward Snowden, but it was, of course, it wasn't. I mean, you know, what they were talking about was combining credit card transactions with classified data, with it's sort of a database of everything. Um, it was incredibly controversial, and it led to congressional hearings, um, and eventually Congress stepped in and closed the program. You know, when I interviewed John Poindexter for the book, you know, he kind of chuckled at the end of the interview with a sort of, well, look what happened after. And his point was that, you know, he at least had a part of the program that was researching privacy and was looking at a privacy protection device. And when Congress, quote unquote, shut down the program, in reality, what they did was they moved all of the surveillance data analysis, data mining programs over to the NSA and look where those went. And the one thing that really got truly shut down was the privacy protection device. Um, I, I think Admiral Poindexter has a point about, you know, he, they took a white program, an unclassified program, and just made it black. Um, but I think his idea of what privacy is never squared with privacy advocates or even how most of us, you know, quote unquote, regular people think of privacy. But his point was well taken. Can you elaborate on that point? Uh, what, what was his version of privacy versus what most of us would think of as privacy? Fundamental difference. Um, you know, John Poindexter thinks a lot. You know, his idea of privacy was it, it's when a human being looks at your data, your, you know, you went and rented a hotel room with someone not your spouse, and that's a violation of, you know, it's not illegal, and someone looks at that data and has violated your privacy. I mean, I'm sort of, he didn't use that example. I'm using that as the extreme case. I mean, this is, you know, we worry about the government having access to our lives, not just the things we do wrong, but even the things we do right, our political views. And in what I've noticed is people within the national security world who work in these issues, they think it's a violation when someone sees it. They see your selfies. They see, you know, whatever pictures people are sending out. Um, but and so his privacy protection tool was going to anonymize all the data so that basically you put everyone's data in a black box and the computer algorithms run through it. And it's only when you identify a pattern that could be plans for a terrorist attack that you would, in his conception, go to some sort of FISA court and say, do we have permission to uncover just that data that was recognized in the algorithms? Um, and that was his conception of the privacy protection tool. I may be simplifying it, but I, I think that's a pretty good encapsulation of it. Well, what privacy advocates say is, no, 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 it's not. I mean, yes, that's a violation as well when someone looks at your private data. But the very act of collecting it, having your credit card receipts, your medical information, you know, your telephone calls, your metadata, that even having the government collect it and trawl through it with algorithms is a um is a, is a violation of privacy. And, and we see this in the post-Snowden debate as well. Um, you know, the government says, well, if you're not a terrorist, you have nothing to worry about. And privacy advocates say that the collect, you know, the sort of collect everything, it is the collection of it and the storage of it that is in itself a violation. And, and that's the disconnect. I got to say, Poindexter, when you move it forward 10 years, actually sounds to me like the ACLU. <laughs> well, that's, you know, so the amazing thing about it is when you look back at the articles about total information awareness, it, it seems like such innocent days, um, you know, because DARPA wasn't even, I mean, um, 
Poindexter had created uh, this thing called Vanilla World. Um, and Vanilla World was a simulation that was going to be used in total information awareness because he said, I don't want real data at this point because I realize that collection of domestic data is very controversial. So they set up Vanilla World to test total information awareness and it was made up with avatars, um, with you know fake people and fake addresses. And the idea was that it would eventually become you know cherry Vanilla World and I forget what the next iteration was. Basically you would add more complexity to the simulations, but no data was ever collected. But when you, what, what he didn't understand, and, and part of this is he just didn't understand the press, was, you know, what, when the controversy started going, it was portrayed as if they were already collecting all this data. And he's like, this is just research. And, and he's right on that. It was just research, although the eventual goals of the program were to use um, data for domestic counterterrorism. But now that we know all of the different programs the National Security Agency was and, and in some cases still is doing. Yeah, what DARPA was doing back in the 2002-2003 timeframe seems in some ways, you know, innocent in its conception, at least, in some respects. I think you just touched on something that I'd like to dig into if we can. You, you said they were just doing research. How much of what they do is is just research? And at what point do other people come in and take it away from them? Uh, as the NSA did after 9/11, like how does that work? Is there a like is there a, a concrete workflow there? Yeah, so it's it, there's an exception to every rule. So in theory, DARPA is only doing sort of prototypes that you know once it develops a something to demonstrate that you can do it. And then the idea is the military services will do it. So, for example, um, back in the 1970s, when they worked on the first stealth aircraft, it was called Have Blue, and Lockheed, and Lockheed Skunk Works was the contractor for it. Have Blue was, was never going to fly in combat, and nor would it be DARPA's role to build those. Um, Have Blue was a prototype to show that you could build an aircraft that could evade Soviet radar. And once they did that, then the Air Force ran away, not ran away, but they ran off and developed the F-117, you know, something that actually was operational. And that, in theory, is how a lot of DARPA programs were going to go. And so, in, for instance, another example was uh, DARPA-funded development of the uh, what was called the Amber drone developed by Abe Karam, an Israeli-born aeronautical engineer. Um, Amber wasn't ever going to be used in, in combat, but its successor down the road, the Predator, of course, was used. Um, and, and so that is the way DARPA is supposed to work. Now, there's exceptions to every rule. Um, a lot of what my book covers, for instance, is the Vietnam years, which a lot of which I wrote about because it had been classified for so long and only recently just declassified, where DARPA was actually deployed in war zones. Um, it was in Vietnam and then it had field offices in Bangkok, in Tehran, Iran, um, in, um, in Beirut, Lebanon, where it was actually developing things and buying things, for instance, like the AR-15, that were going to be used by troops in war. What else were they doing in Vietnam? What Was there anything that kind of came of that research that we would know today? Uh, what were they not doing in Vietnam? <laughs> so one of the things that DARPA would very much like to forget today, um, what's the old phrase that, um, you know, success has a thousand fathers and failure is an orphan? Well, um, DARPA very much is unfortunately the father, mother, and everything else of Agent Orange. It was DARPA and a specific person at DARPA who first suggested doing experiments with chemical defoliation in Vietnam um, as early in, in the early 1960s. They 
they did initial work and they developed it into a full program, um, funding and sending over what were known as the rainbow agents because there was Agent Rose, there was Agent Purple, Agent Orange. We now associate chemical defoliation with Agent Orange because Agent Orange ended up being the most, um, I don't know, popular is not the right word, but the most widely used defoliant in Vietnam. That was true and true, a, a DARPA experiment that was um, that the Air Force was had an operational program for, but started out with DARPA. So that is one DARPA program. Another one that DARPA does tout today, because DARPA does not put Agent Orange in its history books, is the AR-15, where ARPA uh, took over first about a dozen AR-15s, later put in an order for 100, which was originally for the South Vietnamese military. They wanted a lightweight gun that could be used in the jungle for South Viet for the South Vietnamese soldiers. But when the initial reports came back positive on it, there were a group of people who pushed it for the Army, which for those of you then familiar with the very the sort of controversial history of the AR-15, which became the M-16, whether or not it was really a superior weapon is, you know, is a debate that probably still goes on today. I take no position in that. But but that was something it, it started off because it was a DARPA project to introduce a lightweight gun for jungle warfare for the South Vietnamese. Other things that came out of DARPA's work in Vietnam was the first armed drone took a Navy project, a little sort of a weird shaped drone called the QH-50 that was going to be used for anti-submarine warfare. Um, DARPA put weapons on it and they were going to use it on the DMZ in Vietnam to target um, incursions on it. So that didn't develop directly into the Predator drone, but it was the first DARPA project looking at can you merge a sensor with a shooter and create an armed drone. That particular project didn't work out very well. What I argue in the book, which is something that I still argue with current DARPA people, is that Actually, almost everything we associate today with DARPA, like stealth aircraft, like drones, like precision weapons, came out of DARPA's work in Vietnam. So, if, for instance, DARPA introduced a quiet aircraft into Vietnam. Its drone work also led to the eventual stealth aircraft. Um, in fact, what happened is after the end of the Vietnam War, when DARPA was being criticized along with every other part of the Pentagon involved in the Vietnam War, the director of DARPA quietly renamed, um, there, there was a Vietnam office called Agile. And so the director renamed it the Overseas Defense Research Office. And then a couple of years later, renamed it again. He renamed it the Tactical Technology Office. Well, that Tactical Technology Office, a direct recreation of the Vietnam War Office, is today the largest office in DARPA and is the one that is touted as the creator of drones, stealth aircraft, precision weapons, all of the military programs that we associate today with DARPA. I think the one truly big innovation that DARPA takes credit for today that didn't come out of Vietnam War per se, but out of that time period, is ARPANET, the predecessor to the internet. Now, ARPANET was not an outgrowth of the Vietnam War, but in fact, it was an outgrowth of a time period in DARPA when they were going after these big, ambitious projects. And in fact, the very first funding for computer networking was carved out of the Vietnam War Office's budget. All right, War College listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We are on with Sharon Weinberger, and we are talking about DARPA. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Thank you, War College listeners. You are just back from a break. We are on with Sharon Weinberger, and we are talking about DARPA, the Pentagon's Imagineers. Jason, back to you. How does DARPA decide what they're going to fund and which projects they pick overall? has changed over the years. You know, DARPA has a myth about itself because DARPA doesn't know its own history. Because the nature of the art of the agency is that people transition out every three to five years, people who think they know what DARPA is really only know the time period that they were at the agency. So in DARPA's early days, the projects were very much top down that either they were assigned things sometimes by the president himself or by at least by the executive branch, sometimes by the secretary of defense or by the director of DARPA. And then they carried out those programs. Um, but as the years like went on, basically saying like, go build me a laser. Yeah. Well, like I mean, that. Let's look at um, exactly. Let's look at DARPA's first year in existence. Its assignment was to get America into space. Not like, you know, what, what do you want to do for us? But like get America into space. That was what DARPA did for its first year. And to some extent for its first 18 months, um, its other major project was missile defense. It was told to go do missile defense, um, which is where some of the initial laser projects came out of. It was told to detect nuclear tests. So it built a network of seismographic sensors around the world to test to detect Soviet underground tests. These were the projects it was assigned. Now, it also had this larger mandate to sort of, you know, you know, what is now called to stop technological surprise, or I think that's a bit of a misnomer, but to, to think about, I think the phrase that were used was to think about the unimagined weapons of the future. So it also at the same time started sort of developing this bottom-up approach of, of ideas based. Um, so there was a bit of both, of, of top assigned programs and then bottom assigned programs. I think where DARPA has evolved to today there still are programs that it's assigned to do, but it's much more that program managers are recruited based on the ideas they bring in. So you're a potential program manager at DARPA and you meet with a director for an interview and you and he says, what would you do at DARPA? And you you pitch him. You say, these are the five projects that I would develop, you know, a drone that will fly for, you know, 100 weeks or a, you know, a weapon that will do X, Y or Z. And, and that is a 
you know, I don't know what the percentage would be, but I would say that's the majority of what DARPA does today is self-directed projects that they aren't assigned. And, you know, there's good and bad in this. The good is, is it certainly sort of gives a lot of leeway to creativity and good ideas. The downside of it, and this is what I also bring up in the book, is that DARPA has become so protective of its independence and so determined to do its own thing that it runs the risk of being irrelevant to the Pentagon, of being irrelevant to national security. You know, to a certain extent, DARPA was created and its initial directive was very vague, you know, basically to do those projects as directed by the Secretary of Defense. And that's what made DARPA important, that it had things that the Secretary of Defense or even the president cared about. But if the Pentagon, I don't think Mattis, for instance, spends a lot of his day thinking about DARPA or what DARPA can do or how he can use I don't think it ever, ever really comes up in his mind in the course of the day. And what a shame, because that's not the way DARPA was in the 1960s or 1970s. However disastrous some of its projects were in the Vietnam War, it was front and center. The directors were being hauled in front of Congress to talk about nuclear weapons detection, about Vietnam, about missile defense. Uh, you know, hearings that involve DARPA today are standard budget hearings, and I don't think people pay much attention to them. DARPA is not as important, I argue, to national security as it was 20, 30 years ago. And given its track record, I think that's something of a shame. Is it interested in making itself more important or is it happy to fly under the radar right now? So it depends a bit on the director. For instance, you know, Craig Fields, who was a director in the early 90s, very briefly until he was terminated, you know, he, he looked at that as a good thing. I remember I FOIA'd some transcripts of interviews with him and he said it was a great thing. You know, Pentagon didn't know what we were doing, but it also, well, he was fired, among other things. But, but it also, again, it makes you like, who are you transitioning? Thing? You know, you may have the greatest gadget in the world, but if you cannot impress upon whether it's OSD or the military services, why that thing is good, then it dies on the vine. And what good have you done? The reason why I have Blue, the stealth prototype, why, why we know about it today and why it's not sitting as a mothball in some museum, well, maybe the original prototype, but the reason why that transitioned was because then the director of DARPA drove a hard bargain with the Air Force. He said, I'm not going to do this project unless I have Air Force buy-in. Um, Tony Tether, who was the director of DARPA it, for um, over eight years in the early 2000s, from 2001 to I think the um, to, beginning of 2009, he very much wanted to have good connections with the Pentagon and, and made a lot of progress on that. He, he had some setbacks as well. So it depends very much if the directors come out of the national security world or if they come out of more of the science and technology world. You know, there, there's benefits to both. What I always say about DARPA, it's almost good that it's not one thing or the other. You know, you've had directors who really want it to be a science agency and don't care so much about transition and then things sort of percolate up and then you get a director in who says that is the one thing I care about is transitioning these technologies and to a certain extent maybe that's a good thing that you have sort of a bounce between you know different directors and different views it, it sort of helps get things going but then it also helps push things forward. If DARPA isn't the one creating weapons let's say it's um are there other either government agencies or other ways that new weapon systems get developed? Is anybody else thinking about the same kind of thing that uh, DARPA is supposed to be doing? Well, yes. I mean, of course, the military services who are responsible, you know, by statute for their own acquisition, they very, you know, Army, Air Force, Navy are always thinking about the future and they have acquisition, you know, they have programs, submarines, tanks, whatever in the pipeline that they're developing, some of which 
are futuristic by the fact that they take 20 long years longer than they should, not on purpose. But, but yes, um, I, I think the services think about the future, but they think about it in a different way. They're, they're much more, as you know, tied to requirements. What do we need to do? So what DARPA does is it sort of stands back to a certain and says, and says we're, we're untethered to any requirements. We don't have to think about acquisition in that way. We can think about new ways to do things, new technologies to develop. And again, there's a bit of a myth that it's a science fiction agency. You know, certainly there was always an element of futurism in DARPA. You know, one of its first projects back in 1958, the year it was created, was Operation Argus, where they were going to create a force field for the entire planet to protect against missile ballistic missiles. They And they even carried out the experiments for this. They launched nuclear weapons in the upper atmosphere that were going to create killer electrons that would fry, you know, that would create this force field. That was very futuristic. Did it work? Um, <laughs> no. It did not work. I, I think the, um, the, the chief scientist at DARPA at the time, he wrote later in his memoir that the, the particular atmosphere of the United States, basically the killer electrons decayed too quickly, but he said perhaps there could be another planet where this idea would work. Oh, my God. Yeah. No, that didn't work, but we don't have a force field. Um, I don't know. Unfortunately, fortunately, I don't know what to say. <laughs> what, what you found in recent years is that, um, you know, new secretaries of defense come in. And this is part of, I think, the unfortunate part of DARPA sort of moving away from the Pentagon. And they want to demonstrate change. And rather than using DARPA as that agent of change, um, because DARPA is so resistant to doing certain things, they create their own. So to give some examples, um, you know, in the days of Secretary Rumsfeld, um, so I'm dating us back now to the early 2000s, he came in and created something called the Office of Force Transformation, headed by um, Admiral Sobralski, who has since passed away, which I don't think they would have considered, but it was sort of a mini DARPA. You know, it had funding and it did experiments with bouncing lasers off aerostats and some other things to demonstrate new technologies. I believe it was the original progenitor of the idea of a littoral combat ship. I'd have to double check that, but I'm pretty sure it was. You know, and I guess my question is, well, DARPA is kind of tasked to do that same thing. So Office of Force Transformation is gone, but fast forward another 10 years, and what do we have now? We have something called the Strategic Capabilities Office, which actually lives in the basement of DARPA, which was a creation of the last administration of the, of the previous Secretary of Defense to, again, demonstrate new technologies, new technological developments. We also have something called DIUX, which is also sort of a technology incubator that the Pentagon funds to work with Silicon Valley. Again, all things that, in theory, DARPA could do or even has done in the past. We also have more traditional agencies like the Office of Naval Research and the Air Force Office of Scientific Research. They, I mean, they do some far-reaching research, but they're less about projects, you know, building technologies that will transition, I would say. I mean, they're much more on the research aim. So, yes, I mean, the, the short answer is there are other agencies that think about new technologies and about the future, but I would say none quite as ambitiously and, and certainly not as successfully as DARPA has. And DARPA seems to stick around and these other agencies not Right. They, they tend to fade away at well, long term. Exactly. I mean, DARPA has a lot of staying power. Some of that is legacy, but much more. It's also it's, it's no at this point. What's, what's sort of amazing about the DARPA story is that it still exists, because when it was what I found based on the archival archival records that I looked at was that nobody ever 
it was a quick fix. It was a political fix that Eisenhower was taking a lot of flack for not handling Sputnik, that we were behind. And so it was a quick way of consolidating all of the space programs originally and getting America into space. But then that DARPA was stripped. I mean, that was its prestige mission. And it had, um, when NASA was created later, um, and by later, I mean like eight or nine months later, the civilian space programs went over to NASA and DARPA still had the military space programs. But by 1959, it was stripped of even those responsibilities. And I think there was pretty much an idea, yeah, you know, we're going to shut it down. But what DARPA had and its first director was so furious about this. He, he left DARPA in a huff and it asked what he was going to do next. He said, I'm going to be an artist. <laughs> it's <was> amazing. <laughs> And what DARPA was left with was um, actually an intel guy, a sort of a covert ops guy who had been put at DARPA to watch after the interests of the intelligence community. And he kind of looked around and said, this is not bad. We've got like a freewheeling agency that I can use to like do my projects. And one of his projects was Vietnam. So he, he kind of convinced the Secretary of Defense and the White House to keep DARPA alive, which then evolved again into more projects, more diverse over the years and sort of had this lasting legacy. Whereas these other little mini DARPA agencies have sort of popped up as sort of a pet of one Secretary of Defense or the other and usually faded away. DARPA keeps going because when it, it may have failures, but it has enough successes to point to. The danger for DARPA, and this is again sort of the point that I bring up in the book of being isolated from the Pentagon in some respects, is that People will ask, what have you done for me lately? Like, okay, you had the internet, but you know, that was some decades ago. Um, you had stealth aircraft, you had drones. What have you done for me lately? If I were to look back at DARPA's last big lasting success, I would say it is the grand challenge, which were the series of robotic car races in the desert, which deserves absolutely credit for the advent of driverless cars that are just now over a decade later, it's starting to come to fruition. But, you know, that's a decade ago. You, you have to be able to consistently show that you have successes. I, I don't know what consistent is. I don't know if it's three years, five years, or 10 years, because there are a lot of people in the Pentagon who would happily take DARPA's money. You say they changed the world. Do you think they've changed the way we fight war or who we're fighting? I think they've changed the way we fight wars, which perhaps then changes who we're fighting. So, I mean, again, look look at how we have prosecuted the war on terror in all of its iterations and name changes over the years of the use of armed drones. That is, a again, a direct outgrowth of DARPA programs. One of the critical things that happened in the early 1970s as the Vietnam War was winding down and the director of DARPA was, as I mentioned earlier, was thinking about how do I sort of salvage all of this technology and science that we did in Vietnam, but sort of get rid of the stink of the Vietnam War. And so one of the things they did was they um, they did a, a study jointly with the Defense Nuclear Agency, what is now called the Defense Threat Reduction Agency. Defense Nuclear Agency used to be much more important than in the 1970s than it is now. Now it's a bit of a backwater. And they called it, I'm going to mess up the acronym, it was like the LRDDP study which the, which the long range something something research project study and the director of DARPA at the time, which worked with, he said, the reason I gave it that long unrememberable acronym is he's, he's like, I wanted something so obscure that it would never show up in the front page of the Washington Post. He's like, you know, I knew if I called it Operation Smart Kill, we were doomed. So we gave it this obscure acronym. And the goal of the study 
was to um, think about how do you use all of these things, command and control from computer networks, drone stealth, aircraft, sensors, all of the things that DARPA developed from the Vietnam War, and take it to sort of the European battlefield, to sort of the traditional U.S.-Soviet conflicts, or how we would fight against the Soviet Union. That study led to a host of programs of technologies, again, out of DARPA programs that were adopted by the military and changed the very strategy. Um, the biggest one of which was the idea that we had to rely on nuclear weapons on the European battlefield because DARPA was hell-bent on demonstrating that with enough precision, you could use conventional weapons as a deterrent and you wouldn't need tactical nuclear weapons. You wouldn't necessarily need the nuclear deterrent. That, that changed U.S. strategy. It changed the way that the military planned to fight in Europe, and I think it had a lasting effect on the world. There's science fiction, and then there's horror, right? And it seems like they may have gone the horror route a few times. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things they studied and how seriously they might have actually taken them? So I I get two different versions of this. So I I enjoy the paranormal stuff, and I have a chapter on it, because this is is a story that where DARPA could have gone off the deep end very much, and instead they were the heroes. So the story of DARPA's involvement in the paranormal, the story I was told by um, Steve Lukasik, who was the director of DARPA at the time, this is the 1970s, was just great. You know, so he was friends with this guy, Sidney Gottlieb, who is famous in his own right. Um, Sidney Gottlieb was the head of the Office of Technical Services, sort of the science and the, the science and technology arm of the CIA. Gottlieb did things like he developed the exploding cigar, you know, poisons that were going to be used on Fidel Castro. Gottlieb was also behind the very infamous MKUltra program, the LSD experiments that the CIA did, including on unwitting subjects. And Gottlieb, perhaps not surprisingly, was very interested in the paranormal. So, you know, in a way, Gottlieb's division was kind of the CIA's version of DARPA. So it's kind of natural that Gottlieb would know and and, and be interested in talking to the director of DARPA. So Gottlieb invites Steve Lukasik, the director of DARPA, over to his office and says, you know, Steve, I'm, I'm, you know, we're really interested in what the Soviets are doing with bunny rabbits. (laughs) So... The Soviets had been doing paranormal experiments, and one of their experiments was looking at whether there was a psychic link between mother rabbits and their babies. And so they would take a mother rabbit, take the babies, kill a baby in a room far away from the mother, and then see if the mother reacted, if there was this psychic link that the mother would recognize her baby had been killed. This is, I know this is terribly gruesome. And they, the Soviets thought that there was, and that this could be used for, I kid you not, submarine communications. Because one of the dilemmas to today with submarine communications is that when a submarine armed with nuclear weapons or anything else is deep underwater, um, there's no effective way to communicate with it. So you know, they've looked at different things like extremely low frequency over the years. I mean, there are different ways you could, um, but at least at the time, there were not effective ways. So if you could even get a message um, to this, you know, basically nuclear war is happening, please come up and launch your nuclear weapons, that, that would be a way to do it. And you could do this through psychic communications. I mean, even describing So that, kill one bunny for yes, kill two bunnies I, for no. I, yes. And so I, I so what you keep the, the you keep the mother rabbit on the submarine? It's it, it's it's um yeah. Point being, Sidney Gottlieb was was he was interested in an array of these ESP parapsychology, and he was funding stuff, including at um the old Stanford Research Institute, now known as SRI International, a very respected institute. So 
you know, basically what he wants is he wants DARPA to fund some of the work too. And he wants sort of affirmation of the work. And Steve, the director of DARPA, Steve Lukasik was an open-minded guy. And, you know, his version to me when he told me this story was, you know, I thought it was bullshit, but why not investigate it? And, and I think Steve is right. But when I looked back at the contemporaneous correspondence, he, he, he certainly, the, the correspondence was with a straight face, you know, when he was writing this back in the 1970s. So they assigned a program manager to, basically with an open-ended mandate, you know, go, go look at what the CIA is funding out at SRI in California, but also look at the whole field of parapsychology. And, you know, the program manager took it over, thought this was great. He was just going to travel around the world for a couple of years, which he did, and meet wizards and witches and parapsychology experts. But one of the things he did was he went out to SRI to meet with these physicists who were doing the work, and they were doing work with Yuri Geller, sort of the famed Israeli showman, magician, spoonbender, as many people know him, who was part of this CIA program who claimed to have these paranormal skills. You know, he could, you know, in theory, people with paranormal skills could imagine Soviet bases and draw them, um, all sorts of things. And anyway, this program manager went out to SRI, he brought with him two other academics, one who believed in a lot of this stuff um, and sort of premonitions and one who was skeptical. And they went out to SRI and the DARPA program manager just said, it's all bullshit. You know, he was like the guy's a magician and dismissed all of it. Although he still went around and, you know, met witches for a better part of a year. So he didn't, but he basically came back to DARPA at the end and said, there's nothing here worth investing in. I've looked at it all. I've looked at everything. It is all just bullshit in his view. And that was, you know, there was this description of one final meeting in the DARPA director's office with some folks from the CIA, the DARPA program manager. And sort of the CIA people, you know, turn and say, you know, see, see how good all of this is. And the DARPA guy just said, no, it's just all crap. It really is. And and so DARPA was sort of the, you know, I, mean, I guess if you believe in this stuff, then DARPA was played a bad role. But if you believe that this was a waste of government money, then DARPA were the heroes in this saying, like, no, we shouldn't be funding it. Now, the CIA did continue to go on and fund these things for years. What's really interesting is if you saw the New York Times article that came out, a few, I think it was a couple of weeks ago, about the the secret Pentagon office that was looking for aliens and UFOs. Basically, these people come up, and again, one of the people involved in that project is the same SRI guy who was being funded by the CIA to look at parapsychology. So, you know, a lot of my career is sort of looking at the underworld of national security, and what you'll find is these same people come up again and again. It could be UFOs, it could be parapsychology, it could be, you know, LSD experiments, but it's like the same group of people. Just keep coming back for government cash. Yeah, I mean, look, some of these, I mean... You know, I don't, I don't want to say these are kind. A lot of these people, they believe deeply in what they're doing. Some of them do it with greater integrity than others. I, I think there's something to be said about having an open mind. I, I personally don't think it should lead to parapsychology, but, you know, there's nothing wrong with saying we can have an office that explores unexplained things. But the second it's done secretly, I personally become very suspicious of the integrity of the research. And I think time and time again, we see that these offices are hidden because of embarrassment factor and not because they're doing classified research. And, and that's a I think that's a good place for us to wrap up. Jason, do you have anything else? <laughs> no, Sharon, uh, thank you so much for talking us through this. Thanks, guys. I enjoyed this. I hope it was useful. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a fascinating secret world. 
That's it this week, War College listeners. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please pick up Sharon Weinberger's book, The Imagineers of War, The Untold Story of DARPA, the Pentagon Agency that Changed the World. War College is me, Matthew Galt, and Jason, Jason Fields. If you like the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. If you really like the show, please leave a review and let us know what you thought. Here's one from Tom Fodor. I hope I'm saying your name right, Tom. This is an excellent podcast with great guests. The topics are relevant and interesting. The hosts do their best to provide a balanced perspective in a tough, information-rich environment. This really should help everyone with some depth to answer current issues facing diplomacy and foreign policy narratives. Keep up the good work. Thanks, Tom. We will. Keep listening. If you uh, want to talk to us or drop us a line, you can reach us on Twitter at war underscore college or via our Facebook group, which is at facebook.com forward slash war college podcast. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.